Hello, everybody. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to go to the beginning. Go all the way through. No, I'm just kidding. <coughs> Buckle up. Now, let's uh, begin with prayer. Let's thank God for our time together uh, to hear His Word and to uh, be enlightened and blessed by God's revelation. Um, so often we might think that we're here to just learn. Of course that we are. But uh, the re- there's a reason why we're learning, which is to the glory of God. And so uh, with that, with humility, reverence before him, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this study in prayer that we've been doing, that you have uh, enlightened so many of us to the power and of prayer and our um, lack of, of, uh, of understanding of certain things that you now have enlightened us. And for so many, you've improved our prayer life and enriched us with it. We thank you for that your word is always there for us to learn. And therefore, your revelation is always sure. It is always a blessing as your word is alive and powerful. And um, for those who have humility before you, they continue to learn and grow and, and understand more and gain more maturity before you in a better walk with you. And so, Father, through... Um, your spirit, we ask that uh, through him our hearts would continue to be enlightened, and we ask in the, our Lord Jesus Christ's name, amen. Um, what we should uh, not ask, sorry, let me start over. I'll start with a title, that's even better. So we're, we've uh, looked on Sunday kind of a um, an introduction to why we can pray the Psalms and why it's significant actually to do so. Uh, First off, get me straight that this is not the only aspect of prayer. It's a aspect of prayer, Uh, but it is an aspect that should not be overlooked. It's not an option. Uh, in, In my estimation, God's prayer book should not be an optional prayer book, right? Uh, and, and like what I mean by that is like it, it's never looked into or never prayed or <clears throat> infrequently prayed. It should be a consistent thing. And um, as we've said, you know, the, the Psalms are not that long uh, individually. And even if you thought, you know, I don't have a lot of time for like a longer Psalm, uh, you can take a few stanzas of it. And, and the, the thought that is there is a prayer that God has uh, not, not just sanctioned, but it is a prayer from a person that God has put into his very word. And therefore, God has made it his prayer. And therefore, we know uh, from these psalms, these prayers, that these are legitimate things that God would want us to be talking to him about and praying about. Uh, we should not ask what our prayers have to do with us. And that's what today is about. Uh, prayer, all, it, all throughout the Psalms, prayers, works, everything that God does, including our prayer, it's what our prayer should be about. But everything that God does throughout all history has to do with the glorification of Christ and not the glorification of man. And now you may ask, well, aren't we glorified? And we are, but we're glorified as a result of his glorification. We're glorified with him. Mankind is never meant to be glorified on his own. Mankind, we're glorified when we attach ourselves to Christ. And as he's glorified, we're glorified with him. And so it is to our advantage that he is glorified. If we step away from him and seek our own glory, that is to our great disadvantage. And we're warned about this over and over. And a place where this can sneak in, meaning self-glorification, 
is in our prayers. Uh, do my do my prayers have to do with me? It's always something. Oh, good. You know, Jesus, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he was his mic went off. That's why it's there's a pause in it. Uh, so, um, continuing. Sorry about that. For those of you, if you're listening online and you saw a blip, my my batteries and my mic died, but we're back at it. Um, so, uh, all of life in human terms, and I would say in angelic terms as well, but really the Bible centers on human life, not angelic, uh, is centered on Christ. Everything is. So why would we think our prayers in our own personal lives, our desires, wouldn't, shouldn't be and actually need to be centered on the same thing? So, well, and that's why we're starting in Genesis here real quick. If prayer is all about me and not the manifestation of Christ in me, then it will be ineffective. You know, if I'm asking for things, and we used, I think when we talked about this on Sunday, we used Paul's thorn in the flesh as an example, which is a perfect one. That what did Paul wanted comfort. Well, is there, there's nothing wrong with comfort. Comfort's a good thing. But if God has put something in your life that, is to make you uncomfortable for a real reason. Our desire for it to leave is against his will. And your prayer there is ineffective. Your desire is ineffective. And all you will do is cause yourself more misery uh, as you're fighting against God's plan. We should always be aware of what our prayers have to do with the will and the program of God for all of history. And I say all of history because that's where, again, the glorification of Christ is. But we're also praying for our loved ones, and enemies, uh, acquaintances, and so on, people in our church. And so it's really our prayer life is not just about us. It, it extends itself into the life of others. When we pray for others and ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, and we have to actually think about this. And it only takes a minute, but to evaluate ourselves and ask ourselves, are our prayers about centering and glorifying Christ in our lives, or are they about centering and glorifying ourselves? And our desires, you know, is it okay to have desires? That's something we have to tackle here. And you're not human if you don't have them. And you know, God does not call us to asceticism where we try and eradicate all human desires for things that we enjoy that give us pleasure, that even give us physical, mental pleasure. Entertainment, for instance. Um, God has provided for these things. It's just that man has perverted them. Uh, so, uh, to if what are our desires apart from Christ, though, are to glorify us and not him. And there's no glory in glorifying us. It's really kind of a misnomer, an oxymoron. We have uh, to actually think about this before we pray. And actually while we're praying. And what's wonderful, and we'll see this in, in the Psalms as well, is that God tells us you can't lie to me. And you say, well, well, of course I know that. I know I can't lie to you, God. But we do. Often we lie to ourselves. And we lie to others. And maybe we're not doing it consciously, but in the way we act and we speak, we're portraying ourselves in a way that is not real. Like we're faking it. And, okay, and we do that to people. I don't, I don't know if you could eradicate that completely from your life, but you should try. But uh, when you're before God in prayer, you know. Like, I am in the inner room with the one who sees all. And I can't lie to him. 
And not what this benefit of prayer is you can't lie to yourself. I mean, it's just silly to try and lie to God. So you have to be honest with yourself. If you're praying to God about loving his people, are you going to lie to him about that? Or are you going to be honest? Do you really love his people? Do you really love them the way that you should? Are you really gracious? Are you really uh, one who thinks of others as more important than yourself? All of these things are going to come up. So This is why it's... Because am I... In my regular prayer schedule, am I going to be talking about God, about my failure to exalt others above myself? Probably not. But when I'm praying from the Word of God, it's going to come up. And that principle will come up again and again in the Psalms. Do I exalt myself? Or do I try to exalt myself over others? And all kinds, all of that stuff. It comes up again and again and again. And you're forced to talk to it. If you say, oh God, I'm going to pray to you concerning this psalm, even using the words of the psalm, how am I, what am I going to lie to you? And you can't. So uh, this theme of the glory of Christ and not us is all throughout the psalms. But first we want to prove it. Go to, you're there, Genesis 3.15. So we can think about this very quickly by reading through the whole Bible. Now, uh, reading through the whole Bible isn't going to be very quickly. So what we're going to do is look at the beginning and the end. And, and we can get that done in about five minutes. Genesis 3.15. And I will put... Oh, So first off, God puts us in the garden, in a perfect garden, in perfect bodies. How did, how did we do? How did we do in the perfect garden? Not too good. Uh, we, we, we violated the one law he gave us. And then we lied about it and tried to cover it up. Uh, So, and then what is God, what's God's response to our failure? Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now we might, if, if all we had done and knew nothing else, we just started reading Genesis knew nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ, we might think that this is going to be Eve's first son or second son or something like that, that it's maybe Abel. But it's not. And as we continue to read, and of course we already knew this, that uh, the seed here spoken about her son is the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So that's the beginning of human history. Man messes up everything. And what is God's response Jesus Christ, right at the front. Now we go to the end. At the end of human history, or really near the end, if you go to Revelation 17, all the way to the back, we'll find out how it ends. You know, God wants you to cheat and read the end of the book. <clears throat> and this is, it's so wonderful. Uh, we're going over this stuff in my theology class right now, and it's uh, the truths within the book of Revelation are impacting me uh, in ways that I hadn't imagined. And, and not so much that I'm, you know, I'm figuring out, you know, who Apollyon is and when he's coming and, or, or getting all the, you know, the, the bowls of judgment straight and all of that. It's not so much that. i got way, a lot of work to do in that. But it's <clears throat> the moral, ethical conflict that's in the book of Revelation. People get all caught up in the, you know, the mapping it out and finding out when it is and who's the Antichrist and who's the beast and all of this. When, you know, all of that, we need to figure out as best as we can. But the, that's not the main theme. The main theme is that evil has stood against God. Right? So remember Psalm 2? Right? The, the rulers of the earth, they take their stand against the Lord. And the Lord in heaven laughs and scoffs at them and He says, I will set my king, my anointed one, on Zion. Right, so that's the opening of the Psalms, and here we and when we get to the Book of Revelation, which wraps everything up, it's this same thing. 
It's Satan, it's the nations, it's the fallen angels, it's the people who won't repent no matter how bad the tribulation gets. They will not bow the knee to God. And they worship the beast and all they care about is the earth. Even though God has manifested himself in great wrath, they don't care. And they stand against him. So look at 17.14. These will wage war against the Lamb. Notice it's not against us. Against the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? The Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called called and chosen and faithful. You notice, we're not uh, absent here meaning mankind saved mankind. We're not absent. We're here. But we're called and chosen. We're with him. You know, so as he returns and we return with him, what are you going to be able to... I'm, just, I'm, with, I'm with him. That's all you can say. I'm, I'm with the big guy over there. Right? He doesn't even allow us to do any fighting. He fights alone. I'm with him. So... Is there benefit in this to me? Yes. But who gets glorified? If I'm not glorifying him, say I get on my white horse to return with Christ, and I say, you know what? I don't want to go with the army, his army. I want to go on my own somewhere else. Of course, you're not going to do that. But how stupid. right? So um, when we realize that in our prayer lives, in our whole lives, it's about glorifying God and him alone, We must not make the mistake, as some have done, and we can easily do, that there's nothing in this for us. In other words, it's so all about him that, to me, I just become this robotic, almost legalistic obeyer who is destined to misery. Because it's all about him. Now, we have to get the the meat of this and understand it all. It is all about him. But the bet, when we realize that and we, and we seek his glory in our lives, we benefit tremendously. And in fact, it's the only way we can benefit. So let's skip ahead. Go to Revelation 19.20 just to belabor the point. Revelation 19.20. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were thrown into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's the great banquet of birds. It happens so here. But anyway, uh, you know, how are they vanquished? With the sword that comes out of his mouth. All the enemies of God are defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the very, very end, Revelation 22.20, skip skip there, this is the, the last of it. And he who testifies to these these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. So who's at the beginning? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who's at the end? The Lord Jesus Christ. And we say, amen, come Lord Jesus. This day is a day we all should look forward to better than any other day. So in all of history, Jesus Christ alone is glorified. And so in all our prayers, we must seek his glory, not our own. So when I'm praying for my comfort, my finances, my health, my, my people even, my family, my whatever... Do I have Christ in mind? And it doesn't take long to figure, you know, to, to just evaluate. And look, are you going to get this right all the time? Probably, no, you're not. Never mind saying probably not. You're not going to get it right all the time. But <clears throat> it is something that has to be kept in mind. For a healthy prayer life, this has to be about Jesus Christ alone, not me. But then there's the benefit to me. It's of great benefit that he gets glorified in my life because I'm with him. And look, he's, don't forget, you know, he's in me, 
And even though I'm in a world that doesn't respect him or know him for the most part, he is everywhere. He's omnipresent. His hand is everywhere here. There's wonderful things to enjoy that he wants to bless us with. And I mean material things. However much is what he wants for us, but of material things, there's plenty that he's going to give us to enjoy. And uh, so, to Psalms now. Go to Psalm 106. Keeping this in mind is a surefire way of praying for the right things and not being selfish in prayer. We'll see this coming up whenever it comes up. In the James, James writes, you ask but you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You ask so that you can spend it, whatever it is, on yourself. Now, who of us doesn't want? Look, it, we're, we have the flesh. It's another thing you see in Revelation. You see this great harlot who's sitting on this beast. And what is she about? Well, first, she's a harlot, so she's into sexual gratification. Not so much for herself, but she's selling it to others. But she's, we find out she's also into money, like a lot. And she's into power, like a lot. And then, so you look at the human race, and what are they all after? Pleasure, physical pleasure, which sex takes the top. Uh, but there's all kinds of, some people aren't into it all that much, so there's plenty of other things. There's drugs, alcohol, or whatever. Um, and other things, other hobbies that people you know, spend their time on that give them pleasure. And there's the lust for money, and there's the lust for power. Right? So what is it? The, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And everybody's distracted with these things. And then, and, to, and we can be thoroughly distracted by these things, and... Jesus Christ says, you keep your eyes on me. You set me up in the throne of your soul. You seek my glory in your life. When you pray, when you study, in everything. In everything. Because as we just saw throughout this scripture, Jesus Christ is glorified in everything. We see why did he return to the earth in Revelation? Is it so much to save the people? Well, certainly he came to save the people, but that's not the only reason. Actually, it's a secondary reason. He came to glorify himself. And by glorifying himself, he saves the people. So look at Psalm 106, verse 8. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of what? His name, that he might make his power known. So Psalm 106, we're going to return to this one later because we have a bunch of psalms that are about God. God relates to us his work in history. And Psalm 105 and 106, and I think 72, might be 72 or 73, uh, but 105 and 106, I know for sure, are all about the history of Israel. And God is revealing himself in this history. And he's going to show us that in, he wants us to remember history and you know, not, you know, remember what year did like Napoleon Waterloo happen or something like that. What he wants us to remember is the biblical history, which is the history of God. And what has he done? And he says here in, in his history, he saved them, whose them is Israel, for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. And Jesus said in Luke 9:24, whoever loses his life for my sake... He is the one who shall save it. So, <clears throat> what is this about? It's about his sake. Why did God save Israel? For his name. Why does Jesus want to give us a life that is abundant? For his sake. It's not for our sakes. It's not for our names. <clears throat> now, there, we're going to look at them. If we have time, if I hurry up here, there's a bunch of passages like this in the Psalms that will continue to remind us that this whole life is not about us, but it's about him. However, we don't just do things, sorry, we don't do things for our sake, which is true. We don't do things for our sake. But when we do things for the Lord's sake, they're for our benefit. 
And this is important to remember because if I start to lose the idea uh, that there's great benefit to me in this, and I do mean in our physical, real lives, then we'll lose our motivation. Our motivation to do things will peter out. Um, and I, you know, maybe it's a part of our fallenness, but I don't even know if it's that. It's the reality is that God has made us like Himself. We're in His image. God has desires. He has purposes and desires, and so do we. And God has wants to fulfill those desires in His way. And that's what we have to discover. And hence, prayer and study and application is all for that. So, we see this in the same psalm. Go to the end. Go to verse 43. Psalm 106, 43. So, you go through the whole history. Um, you're not going to find anything new. I suggest you keep reading it, though, as you read the psalms. But it's not anything that you don't know. It's, you know what I mean? Like if you read Psalm 106, you don't go, hey, wow, Israel did really well. Uh, no, no, they don't do well there as they don't do in Exodus or in Numbers or in Deuteronomy. But in 106.43, many times he would deliver them. Again and again, God delivered them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. And loving kindness, chesed, is a word that is used in relation to God's covenants. It's God's covenant love or faithful love. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. Wait a minute now. In verse 8, God said, I saved them for my name's sake. And then in verse 45, he said he remembered his covenant. Covenant means saving his people for their sake. So we say, well, which one is it? And it's both. However, his sake is always primal. It's always first. We do not seek our own good. We seek the Lord's good and then anticipate and expect our own. See, if I start to think, well, everything's for my sake, my prayers are going to be for my sake. My life is going to be for my sake. My Bible study is going to be for my sake. How does Bible study become for your sake? That's when people start looking into the Scriptures to justify their actions. And you can, you can pervert the Scriptures into anything you want them to say. If you're cre- you don't even have to be that creative. We'll see that. So, this very much applies to proper prayer. Let's prove it. We'll skip into the New Testament for a little bit more and then go back to the Psalms. Go to John 15. Our motivation in seeking God and His will will not entirely lack in self. So, when we say selfless, right, or if we forget about ourselves, that has a reality to it that doesn't completely forget about ourselves. Um, If I, you know, asceticism is not what we're called to. I mean, should I say that there, there should be zero pleasure in my life, zero happiness? You know, of course not. We're told to rejoice. We're told that God has going to work all things for good. We're going to experience that good. What we mean by the fact that this life is not about us is that it is only about Him, but with Him there is great benefit to us. Therefore, we're not glorified. We're with the One who is. And uh, there's many ways to look at this, but Jesus puts it well here, of course. Look at John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But what does that imply? With him, we can bear much fruit. And that fruit is happiness to us. It's unfortunate that we're, we're uh, so many of us, if not a great many of us, and I include myself here, 
are not willing to commit everything to find out how much this fruit will be. You know, we're like, we're like, well, you want me to give you everything? And he says, yeah. You want me to give you every, yeah, every thought, yeah, every act, yep, everything. Everything means everything. And, you know, willing to do it for a little while and we pull back, willing to do it for a little while and we pull back because we're scared. And we never see it. And, 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 and we're entreated here again and again. And here at prayer is one-on-one talking to your father about, and there's many things to talk to him about, but here is why am I afraid to do all with you? Why am I afraid to give you every moment of every day? Why am I afraid to give you every day? Why do I give you a day here and a day there, but then I keep days for myself? Why am I, what's holding me back? And by study, talking to him about that study, he's going to lead you to places where you're going to see why. And it's, it's revealing. It might not be what you think it is. Yeah, we, we can imagine, we think what's holding us back, and in some thought bubble in our mind, we think we know what's holding us back. But unless we really explore it, we, we probably don't. In fact, I'd be sure that we don't. <clears throat> so, as Christ goes on to teach us, especially here in the upper room in the Gospel of John, he talks to us about joy and peace that we'll have, but it's not ours. He says, my joy will be in you, and my peace will be in you. He also tells us, and it's all throughout the New Testament, that the strength that we'll have, and doesn't being strong make us happy and prosperous, it comes from the Holy Spirit. It's not from us. What about being wise? Uh, it's a great benefit and wonderful. It's fun to be wise and smart. No, not a smart aleck. I'm trying to teach Maggie what a smart aleck is. It's tough to communicate that. But we're old enough to know what that is. Being wise is good. But where does our wisdom come from? It comes from the Word of God. These and so much more are good things for us. And in fact, they're the best things. So while we are seeking Christ in prayer, we're not ascetics, meaning we're going to beat ourselves up. So like, and I have to, uh, well, I'll put this, I'll put that aside for now, but what Christ says, blessed are the poor. That can be easily misunderstood and perverted. Are we to, is that to mean that we all should be poor? No. In the ancient, in the ancient world, see, we have to, this is a more of a historical context thing. But in the ancient world, the poor were not poor by choice. They were oppressed. If you were poor at that time, when Jesus said those words, you were oppressed and you probably got a raw deal in life. You were the born to slaves or uh, you made some bad decisions and you became enslaved or you lost everything or some very greedy person robbed you of your stuff. <clears throat> They were oppressed. There was, was there a welfare system back then? Well, to the Jews, there was a welfare system, and it was called gleaning. So the people who, when they uh, harvested their crops, they were to leave the very edges and the very corners unharvested so that the poor could come and harvest. So if, if you remember, that's done in the book of Ruth. Ruth is a gleaner. But not, uh, not every landowner was allowing gleaning. Now, even in the book of Ruth, we find that Boaz has to tell his people, don't abuse Ruth, let her glean freely. And Boaz is a good, he's a godly man. And yet, even his workers, he knows that she could be in danger of being abused. So, if you were poor in the ancient world, it was not a good thing. Nobody chose it. And oftentimes, you went into slavery because you couldn't pay your debts or at the most, you died a beggar at a very young age, long before your time. So how does that apply to us? Let's all go get poor. Well, no, see, if you force yourself to be poor, you're choosing it. That's asceticism. Jesus then would say after the Beatitudes, blessed are you when you're persecuted for whose sake? My name's sake. 
all who follow him. And he would say this later on in John at the end of his ministry, that if the, wor- the world loves its own and they're going to hate you. All of us who follow Christ, not all Christians, but all who follow Christ are oppressed in this world. They're oppressed by the world. They're oppressed by the kingdom of darkness and Satan. And most of all, I think most frequently, they're oppressed by their own flesh. Because if, if you don't want to follow Christ, you just kind of let your flesh reign. And so it's not really oppressing you, right? You're giving into it. That's not oppression. In a way it is, but it's not, you know, you're not, if you're not fighting the good fight of faith against your flesh, you don't, you're not suffering by means of the flesh. All of us who are trying to follow Christ are suffering by means of the flesh because the flesh is always tempting us. And that would make you poor. Right? In the context of Matthew 5, that is poverty. And Jesus would say what? Because the poor in the ancient world are the oppressed ones. They're oppressed by the rich, like poor people are today. But in our day and age, you could be poor by choice and just live off the government. Anyway, if you're following Christ, you fit into the category of the poor. And Jesus says, blessed are you if you'll inherit the kingdom of God. Now, are we promised riches? We are not. What are we promised by God? Enough. <laughs> and this has to get through every Christian's thick head. We are promised enough. We are constantly tempted in the monetary area, but we are only promised enough. What is enough as God deems fit? And we are not, as Jesus said, to worry about it at all. I look at the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. They don't toil, they don't spin, they don't sow, they don't reap. And you're more valuable than they. Don't worry about it. We, therefore, are to be filled with joy and enjoy good things, enjoy good relationships with people that God gives us. But we're to be careful not to get absorbed with them or think they're the source of happiness. And in that way, we would make them idols. The Christian life, therefore, is a constant search for the proper road. And how did Jesus define that road He said it was narrow. Now, narrow doesn't mean it's impossible to find. What narrow means is it's easy to get off because it's not very broad. So I get a little into me, I get off the road. I get a little into wealth, I'm off the road. I forget about the fact that my life is about glorifying Christ and I get absorbed with me. I get off the road, a little to the left, a little to the right. And throughout our Christian lives, we're skillfully trying to find how to stay on that path. And it takes time and skill, spiritual skill. But the promise is, because we have the Spirit within to empower us and to guide us, He's our guide, He's the light to the path, right? He's the, the Spirit's kind of the one in front of you with the lamp. We could picture Jesus in front of you who's already walked the path, and He says, follow me. And the Spirit is between you and Jesus holding the lamp saying, come on, it's this way. And we're so dumb that we're still getting lost. But we're never lost, lost. And so we are constantly seeking that path. So we return to the Word of God and we study. But we also pray about staying on this path amongst many other things. And we'll get to those things. So as we talk about um, the fact that everything in our life is to glorify God, we have to have a word of caution because any truth can be perverted into a harmful distortion. Any truth. What happens when truths are distorted is that one aspect of truth is emphasized and another aspect of truth is ignored. So take, for instance, grace. In God's grace... You have everything from him, and you have, uh, by his favor, you have not merited any favor from him. He's given it to you, and one of the things you're given is complete forgiveness. And as Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And, <clears throat> and then Paul deals with the, the very next thought that he knew would come into people's minds, that if grace increased when my sin increased, maybe I should just keep sinning. 
And he said, well, wait a minute. Let's think about that. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound or increase? And he said, he uses its uh, uh, optative, now that I'm, see, you're, I know you're impressed as I'm learning Greek, is it means this, no, may it never be. It's like this absolute negative for all future time, never are we to come to that conclusion. I said, what is that? Well, how would we distort that? We overemphasize grace and we neglect holiness. And so why is this so dangerous? In the name of Jesus Christ, I'm carnal. I'm fleshly and I'm carnal. And when people ask, if anybody asks, I'll say, it's all grace, baby. Like the Corinthians. The Corinthians were pumping their fists while they lived in carnality. Isn't the grace of God great? I can be just like the people who worship Zeus and Apollo and Aphrodite. We can be just like you, except we worship the true God. And, of course, we know Paul had to correct them in, in a very harsh way. If, we, the, if the opposite is distorted, I emphasize, overemphasize holiness, and I say to myself, I've got to be holy. And you do, just like you have to live in the grace of God. And it's all holiness and no grace. So you are under the idea that you can't fail ever. Not that you plan to fail, nor should us any of us do that. But if we overemphasize holiness and forget about grace, then we have joyless legalism. And there's, you know, the one or the other isn't better meaning carnality or joyless legalism. Uh, If we deny ourselves good things, right? So in our current topic, emphasis on doing all for the sake of the Lord to the neglect of our own desires is asceticism. So if we say everything is to the glory of God, well, can you, you know, oh no, I can't, I don't dance. (laughs) I don't know, if the Babylon Bee videos, some of them are just, it's a Christian organization and some of them are just hilarious. But they, I just watched one today that was, I almost thought about showing it to you because I wanted to do something. But it's, it was a guide to Christian denominations, how to discern Christian denominations. And it was just hilarious. They parody all the denominations. But, <clears throat> you know, the Baptist is this boring guy who doesn't drink or dance or smoke or drink. He doesn't do anything, yeah. As somebody somebody told me a joke, actually a, a kid told me, he's like, how do you get a Baptist not to drink at your party, to drink all your beer at your party? And the answer is to invite another Baptist. And then they, you know, they won't drink at all. <clears throat> um, so, you know, it's all of this, they distort one way or the other. And if we do that, not, so, and of course, the pendulum swings the other way and people say, well, oh, yeah, I hate those legalistic Baptists. I'm a non-denominational Christian who can do anything that I want, man. You know, so I'm super cool and super free. You're super carnal. You're just as much a slave as anybody. You're a slave to your flesh. If we emphasize doing everything for the sake of the Lord, and we must, but to the neglect of our own desires, we fall into asceticism. And what happens to these monks as they go away into asceticism? Oh, they forget about all pleasure and all the women and sex. They forget about all of that because there's no women around. There's no parties around. There's no dancing around. No. They made a lot of good beer, didn't they, the monks? Maybe that's how they drowned their (laughs) sorrows. I don't know. I don't mean to dump on them that way. There is uh, somebody was telling the monastery up in uh, is it Mount Angel? Yeah, Yeah. they have they have an excellent brewery up there. Uh, So anyway, denial of all good things for ourselves will, in a short while, increase our longing and desire. But our longing for what? Personal enjoyment, personal good things. If we rob ourselves of these, we rob ourselves of joy. So, what's the answer? God has provided these things. And so we seek his glory, and we also enjoy what he's given us. And he gives us perfect guidelines. 
Right? Per, and for all of these, it's not, there, there's not a thing that doesn't have its guideline. Whether it's for alcohol or it's for sex or it's for enjoyment of anything, uh, there is a guideline. Uh, so, we want to do, yeah, we're in the New Testament, so let's do it. Uh, go to 1 John 4. We don't want our Christianity distorted into something impersonal and anxious. We don't want our Christianity giving us the wrong kind of fear. Right? I can't do anything. Think because I fear failure. I, I'm always thinking about how I'm going to fail. That's the wrong kind of fear. We should be concerned about failing, but only because we fear the Lord. So look at First John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. Isn't that what the legalist is worried about, is punishment? And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Now this one's also distorted into thinking, well, we should have no fear at all. But that's not true either. You can't take one scripture and make a whole life out of it. We have to take all scriptures. So if we want to understand fear, we have to look at other places in the scripture where we find fear. And is there a legitimate fear? And we find, yeah, and it's mentioned a lot, which is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord in reference to awe and respect and the desire to please him. But we're not to fear punishment. So we must have obedience, but we must also understand that our obedience and our doing all things for his sake are going to bring the Lord's great happiness and peace and love into our lives. Remember the Lord indwells you and he is everywhere in this world. Sure, the world is cursed, but there's a lot of good things here that he has given us to enjoy. So skip ahead to, wait a minute, let's go back, sorry, 1 John, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm trying to rush. We have many good things to enjoy, and we should expect them, but not more than God, whatever God says is enough. You know, God says enough is enough. 1 Timothy 6, 17 Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Right? That's not asceticism. We're to enjoy them. But he's the one who supplies them. So he doesn't tell, you know, instruct the rich to give it all away and be poor. Blessed are the poor. No. <coughs> he says don't be conceited. And don't fix their hope on riches. So then, we do not do things for our sake, but we do things for the Lord's sake. And they are all, all the things that we do for the Lord's sake is for our benefit. And it takes faith to explore that fully. The Lord told us that the road is narrow, and that just means that we can get off of it real easily. Uh, so when we go too far to the right or to the left. <clears throat> now, the problem that I, I, I wanted to warn us of here before we dove into this is that if there's no good in the Christian way of life for you, your motivation to resist temptation will wane to feeble weakness. And in a very short period of time, if there's nothing in this for you, then your resistance to the flesh will be weak. The weak will be like the flesh will be like, look, I care for you more than Christ does, don't don't I? I mean, I can give you at least temporary happiness or temporary stimulation. But when we understand that through glorifying the Lord in our lives, that there is wonderful the things that He told us peace, love, joy all of it. All right. Uh, Daniel 9. Book of Daniel. We haven't been there in forever.
I know a lot of scriptures tonight today. <clears throat> Daniel nine nine. And this uh Daniel's praying here. Yeah. Minor prophets, right? So Daniel, Daniel uh, in this passage looked into actually the prophet Jeremiah uh, and was curious to see through the prophet how long Israel was supposed to be in captivity. As you know, Daniel is in captivity in Babylon. And he, he finds out, just as, as we should know, and as uh, Jeremiah wrote, that, that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. And Daniel is... Uh, disturbed by this revelation. I mean, he knows why they're in captivity, but he begins to pray here for Israel. And we'll just pick it up in verse 9. He says, To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, <clears throat> nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which, set us, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Now, if there's anybody who could say, rather than we have rebelled, I mean, why doesn't Daniel say they have rebelled? Daniel was taken in captivity as a young man of Babylon, and from what we read about him, he has been stellar spiritually in everything he's done. But notice he puts himself in with Israel. We have rebelled. Not even Daniel who's got to be one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, does not exalt himself. He does not glorify himself. He puts himself in with his people. We have rebelled. And then he has this beautiful conclusion that we are all for his namesake. We are here. What we are is all for God's namesake and not for our own. Go to Look at verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. We have sinned. We have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications for your sake. O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary, on us in captivity. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is your people, your city, and your deliverance. And all you do for us is for your name's sake. So, in our prayers... What are they to be for? His sake, not our own. But yet, who benefits? Even this people that Daniel wonderfully in his humility makes himself a part of. He says, we have been wicked. We have sinned. We have broken your law. Uh, he, the, the forgiveness, the deliverance of Israel is for the sake of God. And so we have just a few minutes. Uh, go to... Psalm 106, I meant to finish up with Psalms here, but that's okay. I read them too fast. Back to Psalm 106, where we have the history of Israel again. And we've already seen in verse 8 that God delivered his people for his namesake. We saw down at the end that his deliverance was for their sake. In other words, their great benefit but here we see, look at Psalm 106, 23. <clears throat> uh, 
And speaking of the history now, now of Israel with Moses on Mount Sinai, therefore he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So Moses, again, it's a prayer for others. This is another aspect of prayer that we're going to we'll look at before we wrap this up, is that our prayer for others, for the deliverance of others. <clears throat> and here's Moses' prayer. Oh, I meant to put that in. But here's Moses' prayer in Exodus 32.8 that's being referenced here. Remember, Moses said, don't... See, God said to Moses, stand aside, I'll wipe them out, and I'll make a nation out of you. You know what dawned on me for the first time when I read this just a couple of days ago? If Moses had said, you know what, God, good idea, he would have, he would have went into the promised land. If God had wiped out the people, Moses, Moses doesn't go into the promised land because he hits the rock twice 40 years later. It's years later. If these people were gone, that probably wouldn't have happened and Moses would have went in. But because of Moses' great humility, he doesn't even get to go into the promised land. It's amazing. So what Moses' appeal to God was, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants who you swore by yourself. You put your name on them. You can't destroy them. Incredible. What here, us, this world, all Christians, the whole church, the beginning and the end, the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, all of it. Is it for us? No. None of it is. And our prayers not must not be for us either. So, you know, in this, in, I, I think we've clarified that, but just in case the thought hits you again, and say, well, if none of this is about me and it has nothing to do with me, then that's kind of depressing. And I get that. Because my mind has gone there too. And I get, well, if it's all about God and it's not about me, where is my, I don't know, ambition? Is there such a good, is there such a thing as good ambition? You bet there is. If it's pointed at the right thing. So Paul's, Paul talks about his ambition. He said, I pursue I, uh, the Greek word is dioko. It means lust for the calling of God. And, and what did he want? He said he wanted this life in which he experienced the upward call, this call that God had put upon his life, that he wanted to experience the full of it. And why did he want that? Because he said that I would participate in the life of resurrection. He meant here in time on earth. The promise of... <clears throat> He said, brethren, I don't, I don't, uh, I know that I haven't attained it yet, but one thing I do is I press on. And, and so what's the pressing on for? Uh, it's rejoicing. So, and that's what he would, so that's in Philippians 3, what I just mentioned. In Philippians 4, he said, rejoice, <clears throat> my brethren. Again, I say rejoice because our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, this, as we seek his glory and his alone in our lives, it actually is the only benefit to us. The benefit to us is great. So it's kind of like the parable of the talents, right? You give, this guy gets ten talents, this guy five, this guy gets one. The one with one is so afraid of the master that he just hides it. And the master says, why didn't you just put it in the bank? That's all you had to do is put it in the bank. But to the first two, they said, look, they invested it. And when the master returned, they said, your, your ten talents has made, well, it was five. So your five talents made ten. And he said, well done. Um, and here for us, too, the benefit to us is incredible in terms of this life. But what we seek in prayer and study and everything must be to the glory of Christ and not to our own. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for <clears throat> these wonderful exhortations and reminders about what it is that we are seeking. As sheep that we are, we can so easily go astray, get distracted with wrong things. 
But through your word, Father, you keep us grounded. Through your Psalms, you keep us um, in the right path. And so, Father, we ask that through your spirit, each of us would be um, more knowing and more understanding of the principle of seeking the glory of your Son and not our own. And we ask in Christ's name, amen.